Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. If you're watching online, I invite you to, or here, I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word at Romans 1. We are working our way through chapter 1, and we are on verses 14 and 15 this morning. Our message and our notes are back here on the table. It's called Gospel Drivenness. What we have been looking for is that which flows out of our union with Christ as believers. He is putting all of this simply in his introduction, and, and we are taking our time with it. So I, ask you, I invite you to stand as uh, we are getting two verses in this week rather than just one. So clipping right along here this morning. But let's hear what God's Word has to say for us this morning. Verse 14 Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for this time together that you're you're redeemed, that are united with your Son, have gathered together. Uh, Lord, some of us can be here watching online. Pray for my brother Joey, who's preaching at another church this morning and doing the same thing I am, probably right about the same time. So I pray for him, that you'd give him what he needs, open up the word and to preach the truth. Lord, help us now, all of us, uh, to be able to set aside the burdens of this week and the burdens of our tomorrows to hear from you and to be comforted and strengthened by your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the gospel is preeminent everywhere in Scripture, but especially in Paul's letters, and so it is in Romans that he begins, the gospel is in the middle. Uh, We come to this simple question this morning, for whom is the gospel? Uh, Who is it for? I didn't say it that way because I don't think you're supposed to end your sentence with the preposition. That's right. And uh, my wife is sanctifying me slowly over time. And uh, but a a better question I want us to ask this morning is: Do we owe something to the lost, the people who don't know Christ? Do we owe something to the broken people of this world? That's, That's sort of the question behind the question. Seems to be, and it is, that this is verses 14 is placed here because of verse 13 that says there is fruit to be had, not only in the body of Christ, but in Rome itself. But there's all kinds of questions that we hear when we think about Christianity. And you're going to hear it in the world. If you hadn't heard it, you will. Um, Just put yourself out there a little bit and some of the resistance that we hear, the excuses we hear to dismiss Christianity is sometimes Christianity is a white man's religion. Uh, We also say it's simply a Western religion. religion. I liked what Dr. Evie Hill, when someone asked him why all the pictures of Jesus were always white, that long flowing locks of hair, you know, that you see. He said, quote, I don't know anything about a white Jesus. I know about a Christ, a Savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he is. He was born in the brown Middle East. 
He fled to black Africa. He was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. So I don't know what color he is. I do know one thing. If you bow at the altar with color on your mind, you'll get up with color on your mind. Go back again and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his greatness and his power, his power to save. Amen. So, but we also hear say, you're only a Christian because you just happen to be in this stream the stream that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation. So you are these Christians, these weird kind of evangelicals. If you had been born in another stream, you'd have been a Muslim, you'd have been a Buddhist. And that's in part true, right? The issue here is not where we may have the privilege or the disprivilege or not privileged to be born but whether there is a God and whether or not He is the God that Christianity declares Him to be. Is He the Bible's God? Because creation, you got to stick your head in the sand to not understand that there is a monotheistic one God and He is a personal God. The question is, is He the Bible's God? Is He the one who sent His Son? Because if He is not then you have to earn your own salvation and hope you get there. But if he is, we have the best news in all the world that God sent his son to provide salvation for all who believe. That's the issue. And don't fall for any bad arguments. You even hear this, Christianity, and listen, this is what is preached in the universities today, whether indirectly or directly. Christianity is the religion of the uneducated. It's the ignorant man's religion. They just don't know any better. If they were enlightened like us, if they were educated like us, then that wouldn't be. But listen, their lives fall apart just like us. They are sinners, and they know it. This world is not as it should be, and they know it. Their lives are not as should be, and they know it, and they must deal with that with all of their degrees hanging on the wall, educated and uneducated, come into this world and go out the same way, and they will enter into eternity with the Lord or without Him, just like we all will. There's some better questions. Gets to the heart of the issue, especially within the church. Is Christianity your parents' religion? Is your parents' faith? It's a bigger problem within the church than we'd, than we'd like to admit. Are you following Christ because people that you love are following Christ? Or do you know Him? And are you following Him no matter who else does? You've got to understand this morning the gospel is for you. There's another big problem within the church when it comes to answering the question, who's this gospel actually for? It is this idea that, that it's just for me and mine. The us for and no more mentality. No, we don't say it. We just live it. Churches are dying on the vine by droves because they, they have with our actions and listen, with our budgets... 
have said. We don't care about those people out there. We love each other, and we are going to care for each other till we all put ourselves in a box one day and then put a for sale sign up on the property. And that's what's happening. No, no. The gospel is not only for us who believe. The gospel is for the world that doesn't believe. That's the message today. As a matter of fact, uh, Peter had to learn this. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Peter sees that the Gentiles are being saved. And in Acts 10, 34, he says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This will be Paul's driving point in the next section. This understanding that there is no partiality with God. All stand in need of God. There is a flowing logic here this week and next week. All stand in need. And what Paul is saying, I am obligated. I am ready And I am unashamed. The question that we are asking is, what about us? Do we feel the obligation? Are we ready? And are we part of the unashamed? Main idea. Union in Christ brings us into fellowship with each other. A longing for the growth of all believers. And a collective drivenness to his mission. We've been having that same main idea for the last few weeks. We're at the last few words, a collective drivenness to his mission. So union in Christ, it brings communion with each other, but it also brings a gospel obligation to all peoples. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. What is that word? So there's two words here. Our first word of the day is obligation. The second is going to be Ready. First word is what? Obligation. What does that mean? I bet my brother here's got the King James. If his his I bet says debtor. I am a debtor. It's a good word. And that actually helps us to really tease out what he's talking about there. This word literally means under obligation. Martin Lord Jones used the word that he is constrained. There is, for Paul, a holy pressure for the mission of God that rests on his life. It informs his life. It informs his ministry. It informs everything. It is why he does what he does. So, I hope, especially when you think of the word debt, that this raises a question. You need to think about the Bible when you read it. Why did they choose this word? What does that word mean? Is the Bible saying that we owe God for our salvation and how we pay Him back is by the mission? Telling people other about Jesus, helping people follow Jesus is the way we pay God back. For our great salvation. And, and whether we say that overtly or not, we all need to ask ourselves the question Have I embraced this? Could be why we're not very motivated. 
Ephesians 2.8 makes it clear, don't we? We know this. We are saved by grace through faith. And that what? It's a gift. It's a gift precisely. What does it say? So we don't have anything to brag about. So if salvation is a gift, why would we have to pay it back? Is it really a gift if we owe God for it? Listen, there is a danger, and it's, it's one of the reasons why hospitality is hard to catch on in your life, because we have embraced what some call a debtor's ethic. A debtor's ethic is if Ricky invites me over to her house, by the time I pull out of the driveway, Ricky, I'm saying I need to get Ricky over to my house. Hey, honey, you, you need to put that on the calendar because she cooked us a big meal. I mean, man, she made fried chicken and everything. So we're going to have to outdo it, right? Within the two to three weeks, there's this unwritten rule. We can't go, what is that? It's a debtor's ethic because she did something for me. I must do something for them. That will not only destroy your relationships. It keeps everybody in this professional tit-for-tat kind of quid pro quo kind of relationships that's destructive. It is just completely unbiblical. And it is, it is just nearly at the point of rank heresy to believe that that's the way the gospel works. We are saved as a gift. So what does it mean to be in debt to all people? There's two ways to understand this word obligated or debt. I think an illustration would, would probably be helpful. If, if I give Mike $100 and I tell him I'm going to pay him back, I, I'm in debt to him until I pay him back, right? That's the easiest way to think of debt. Most of us think of debt that way. We want to buy a car, we go to the bank and borrow the money, and we're in debt until we pay him back. There's another way to think about debt, and it's the biblical way to think about this here. And that is this. I give Mike $100, and I say, Mike, will you give this $100 to Phil? You give it for me. So at that point, Mike is in debt to me until he delivers the $100. He has a job to do at that point. He has received it in order to pass it on to who I have asked him to pass it on to. It's not Mike's. It is not debt in that sense. It's debt until he passes on. That's the, that's the meaning here, and I want you to see it. And I hope if you think about it for a minute, you begin to think about all, turn to Luke, all of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be a steward. When he's talking about what it means to live in a kingdom and what it means to be ready, be kingdom ready, I think we would think about Luke 12. So turn with me to Luke 12. I'm not going to get into depth. It's a message on its own, but it's completely connected to what we're talking about here. Got to grab a hold of this. Luke 12, just look down that whole about verse 40. A little bit above that, you see the context. The, the parable says that there is a, the Lord is coming and he's using a, the illustration of a servant and a master. And he said the servants need to be ready. That's what we're going to next. Jesus has just flipped the order here. He needs to be ready. We all need to be ready. 
And he tells the servants, you need to have your lamps burning. You need to stay up. Be alert. Because our master's returning and we don't know when he's coming back. But we need to be ready. If you look at verse 40, it says, You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And look at what verse 41 says, Peter said. (laughs) This is the slowness to get all the things that Jesus would say. Peter said, "Uh, you talking to us? Are you talking about us? So Jesus expands, lest they think we're just supposed to sit around with a flashlight waiting on Jesus to come back. He says, no, you got work to do. When the master comes back, when Jesus returns, he needs to find us alert and waiting, but actively working because he has entrusted us with something. That's the same terminology that Paul is using in Romans, verse 48 of Luke 12. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. To be obligated is to be entrusted. The calling to be faithful stewards until Christ returns and takes us home is every servant of God's responsibility. That's why Paul has said, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I'm under obligation from God to deliver a message. He's obligated to all people to deliver what has been entrusted to him. I am under obligation both, now let's see who he's an obligation to, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So why did he use this terminology? Well, because who he was writing to. We could say it this way in our day. The gospel is for the advantage and the disadvantaged. The educated, the uneducated. How, how are you advantaged? How can you be disadvantaged? Educationally? Ethically? Economically? It's interesting, isn't it, that this is written to Rome, but he's bringing up the Greeks. You would say, I don't know that much about history, but didn't the Romans whoop the Greeks? Well, yes and no. They won the war, but they did not win the culture war. There was Greeks, not only Greeks in Rome, the culture was Greek. The language was Greek. Even the thought of the day down to their religion was mixed up. Greek was dominating. And so there were only Greeks and those who are not Greeks, right? (laughs) And if you're not a Greek, they would call you a barbarian. The the reason they had the word barbarian is, is, is when they listen to someone who's not Greek talk, it sounded like, we would say, blah, 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 blah. So they called them barbarians. Barbarians. Because it just sounded like a bunch of gibberish when they were around. He's using this. 
He's not making an argument about who's better. You fall into that, you've missed his point. His point is the gospel. He says you are obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks. You're obligated to wise and foolish. And so to Greeks, like if, if you didn't speak Greek, like if you, didn't, if you weren't part of that culture, if you were outside of that, you were simply cut off. I mean, from everything that was socially, culturally, hobnob. No, you couldn't go to the country club. You're one of them folk. You're outside of that. And so the, the Greeks would look down on non-Greeks. Thought they were uneducated. Paul, Paul's point is clear. That it doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter whether you're a Greek or you're not a Greek. The gospel needs to go to all people. That's his simple point. The truth is, when Jesus came, he did not start with those that lived on top of the hill. Just look at who his disciples were. That's why, that's why they were amazed. Because these were uneducated people, except for they had been with Jesus. They hated him because he hung out with drunkards and sinners, you remember? That was his mission field. They were not his besties. Those were not his best friends. Our best friends are people united in Christ. His best friends were his followers. But his mission field were the people that everybody else scorned. And after his death and resurrection, exactly what the mission that has always been in place from the foundation of the world began to permeate into the world to all peoples. Paul's gospel commission was a general one. Though he specifically targeted Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Isn't it interesting that for Jews, there were only Jews and non-Jews. For Greeks, there was only Greeks and non-Greeks. You see the tendency in human nature? You need to get that today because we do it too. Divide people up. So let's put this together. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Let's know how he puts it. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Do you see that? That is explicit. I must go preach the gospel. A necessity has been placed on me. When I was saved, I was brought into Christ. I received a calling. Paul's great commission. And our great commission. I have to. I'm a steward of it. As much as Mike would be a steward of that $100 till he gave it to whom it was for. We live in this life because we have been given a gospel and we owe the world 
until we deliver it. Until we go home or he comes back, we are not done. Verse 19, look what he said. 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. Do you see it? It's what he's saying. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart. Why? For the gospel of God. He had an obligation to preach the gospel. Don't think about a preacher when you think about that. Think about someone who has has been entrusted with a responsibility to take the good news that they themselves have received. It says here in this text that we are supposed to not only take the gospel to the saved, but to the lost. Believers need the gospel. Believers love the gospel. Amen? (laughs) Amen. But also to the lost. All people, no matter their background, no matter their advantages, no matter their disadvantages, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their social class... Everybody stands in need of the gospel. This is Paul's dominant theme that's going to stand. It's not going away. And our fruit that he wanted to harvest in verse 13 is determined how we preach the gospel and declare the gospel among ourselves and among the world. Our union in Christ comes with an obligation. But it also brings another desire. That is, we must be ready. Readiness. This is what comes out of our union in Christ. Look at verse 15. We see our second word. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul's going to preach the gospel. He has been, not stopping, still alive, going to preach the gospel. Who's he going to preach it to? Went into a town. Who was the first people he went to? Almost always there was a temple. Where did he go? Went to the Jews. He was a Jew. But his focus was the people God told him to preach the gospel to, which was Gentiles. What he's saying is, I'm eager. What does that mean? He is willing. He is ready. Literally, it means an excited fervor to do something or to accomplish something. We call it passion. He had a passion about the gospel. So any, any understanding of, of an obligation that sounds more like I have to rather than I can't wait to is, is a serious issue in your life. Quit making excuses. It's if God made an accident by giving you the personality that he gave you. We have an obligation to go, and it is a passion. It is a privilege That's what he's saying. I am eager. I am ready. Paul, he's ready because he knows something that he has to pass on. He knows something. He got to pass it on, right? Many of you know I got blood work this week. My three months, every three months, I have to blood work, make sure my cancer is still where it needs to be. It was zero. How long did you think it took me to pass that on? Right? Christina's saying, okay, to post that thing on Facebook. I mean, we were excited about it. That's the word here. How how pitiful it is to be excited about something like that, but then keep the gospel in our pocket. 
sitting there going, no, no, I'm, I got something to talk about. He, he, he had this action nine. I cannot believe what Jesus did in my life. Not, I, was, I was not looking for Jesus. I did not have a Jesus hole in my heart. I, I thought I was serving God. And Jesus showed up and knocked me off my horse and set me blind so that I might see and gave me a mission. And I've got to do it. I get to do it. I can't believe God uses me this way. The call of salvation, brothers and sisters, comes with union, communion, and commission. And none of those are multiple choice. If you accept union, if you're received into Christ, you are part of the body of Christ, the family of the redeemed, and you embrace his mission. No exceptions. Listen to another way Paul describes it. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians five. Look at verse fourteen. Second Corinthians five fourteen. See, Paul knew man's need and Jesus' salvation. Listen to how he puts it, verse fourteen. For the love of Christ, what? Controls us. It controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul had something to give. He knew man's need, and he knew Jesus' salvation. And it was this love of Christ that redeemed him, that desired to redeem these, the nations, that drove him. He knew their need, and he knew that all the other religions are not different paths, but they were false, because they all said, you can somehow work to get to God. And he said, you can't work to get to God. God sent his son, and you must come through faith, and we got to get that message to the world. Controlled him. Paul knew he had something to give. Paul knew that man's need in Jesus' salvation. And Paul was ready to declare the gospel. Peter was too. First Peter chapter 3, verse 14. I think you, 14 and 15, you should know this verse. First Peter 3, verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We can use any number of illustrations. And this may have actually happened to some of us in the room. That you have someone that is an unbeliever all their life long. They get down to the end of their life, to those last and sometimes worst of moments. And, what, and they think, who in my life can give me a little bit of hope? 
and they think of you. So in desperation, they get somebody to call you and you, on that long drive over to the hospice house. And you think, do I have something to pass on to him? There's no time to call the preacher. He called you. Amen? He called you. This is the point. Do you have something to give him? Because you're going to be one of the last people he talks to. It doesn't matter at that moment. Listen, it doesn't matter whether he was a professor at Harvard or a neurosurgeon or a blue-collar guy in the factory. All that matters is the gospel at that moment. Are you ready to give an account of the hope that's within you and trusting, trusting him to the only one that can save him? Are you ready? That's the question. Here's another question. Here's another thought. This is an important thought. Paul knows his audience. Paul knows the person that's sitting in front of him. He's aware that the gospel doesn't change. But he's also aware that the audience often does. And so he's ready if he's in the Acts 17 moment where he's around a bunch of philosophers. He engages them with the same gospel, but he has a different form, a different argument. He starts in a different place. Where we start is simply the bridge to the unchanging gospel. Our point is to get to the gospel. He could speak to the Stoic philosopher, but he could also speak to the regular dude in Galatia, in Thessalonica, Ephesus, Rome. He could speak to the cultured Greek, to the uneducated barbarian. He was comfortable, in other words, in the slums or the universities. Are you? Listen to what he said. Just listen to this. You know this passage. 1 Corinthians 9.20 To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not, not myself being under the law. That I might win those under the law. Verse 21 To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. One guy said it this way, If a preacher cannot preach his gospel to everybody, I take leave to doubt whether he can preach to anybody. We must be willing to know who God has set in front of us. This is why I love one-on-one discipleship. And if you tried it and if you do it, you know it's true. Because it is the easiest context to get to know that person that sits in front of you. So that you might get to, to the gospel. You have to know your audience. You have to know that person. But listen to what this does not mean. This is what it does not mean. And this is important because we've been taught this is true. Listen, everything that is, has a fallacy that will mess you up has a, has a lot of truth in it. This one does too. It has truth in it. Unless I am poor or I have been poor, I can't really witness to the poor. They won't listen to me. Unless I was raised in the hood, 
I can't reach people in the hood. Unless I've struggled in some particular way that they have, I can't reach those particular people. Can I just ask us all a question? Where is the power of the Holy Spirit in that? Where is the power of the gospel of God to take the dead wherever they are and make them alive and use people like us to do it? If that's true, then I must be a banker unless to reach bankers. Then do I need to embrace alcoholism in order to reach an alcoholic? As a fallacy and it. it's a flawed mindset that dismisses the power of the saving power of the Holy Spirit. It work in our lives when we present the gospel. Our commonness is that we are all sinners in need of God's grace. Whether we live on top of the hill or whether we live in a tent. Our, gom- our commonness as believers is not a common life experience, but a common faith in Jesus Christ. We best get that right. Lest we offer an excuse because those people live over there or look like this. They won't listen to me. Just not true according to the power of God and the Holy Spirit. We are called to take the gospel to all peoples. We change our methods. We might change our presentation slightly. But the obligation is the same and our core message is the same. I was encouraged. I, I think it was Timothy Keller that said to really know that something is authentic. You don't have to know every possible counterfeit all over the world. You nearly need to know what, what the authentic looks like to be able to engage people with the gospel. And we have the authentic good news. And we take it. You don't have to study every religion in the world to be able to bring the gospel to someone that does not believe like you. Paul says this is ultimately about favoritism if we don't get this point. We declare it without favoritism. Without favoritism. James 2. Just listen to it. You know this. James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He goes on to say that people come into church and you treat one with dignity and honor. Now, in the Baptist church, you wouldn't sit them on the front. Because nobody sits up here anyway. You'd sit them in the back row, right? <laughs> back there with John. Yeah. The important people sit on the back row in the Baptist church. No, I'm just kidding, but... But the, partial, the partiality is the same. This idea of, of treating people with distinction. Now, we are friendly Southern people. How y'all doing? I'm good. How you good? Right. Mm. We're still going to be friendly. Many people that come in and go to churches around here are treated friendly. But here's the truth. There is a circle, and you're not invited in it. There's a circle, a group. You're not in our. It's this us four no more. You're not, you're not in it. If, you, if, if you're lucky, we're going to be nice to you. You can come to all our events, and, and for sure, you can give you money. But you've got to spend about five, six, seven years around here before maybe we'll crack the door and let you really in. He said that's, that's favoritism. 
And it is a gross perversion of the gospel when it happens, whether it's happened within the church or without. But I am afraid oftentimes, and I pray it's never true here, that we've gravitated toward a message. Remember, it's not just what you do on Sunday. It's how you engage people through all through your life through the week that, I, that we're really ultimately talking about here. That we gravitated to a message that, that doesn't hit or hurt. That is, we take the bad news out of the good news and rob the gospel of its power. We have a tendency to cater to felt needs. A message that draws, that not convicts or comforts, but not corrects. And listen, sometimes we navigate toward a gospel that knocks down but doesn't lift up. That reveals the problem and just leaves people sitting there in their hopeless misery and not give them a remedy. But listen, if we are younger, we only present the gospel to younger. If we are older, we only present the gospel to older. If we are blue-collar, we only present the gospel to blue-collar folks. We are telling everybody else with our actions that the gospel is not really for you. It's just for us. And it matters not whether there is 500 people in the room this morning or five. It matters not whether there's 6,000 that sits in front of you at a coffee shop or just that one. You preach the gospel to the person that your sovereign God sets in front of you. It's about stewardship. It's not about numbers. It's about delivering what has been entrusted to us. If we cannot be faithful in that... Why would God multiply us? We must be faithful in the small things so that he will let us be faithful over many. Paul was obligated, Paul was ready, and Paul was unashamed. We're going to talk next week about the unashamed. You know, Paul was like anybody else. Paul would have rather been liked, right? Paul would have rather been applauded. Paul didn't particularly enjoy being beat up, being made fun of, and shipwrecked. and He was willing to because the gospel was that precious in his life. So what? I just had one thought that I wanted to bring together, some things that we've been talking about before. Do you know what has been entrusted to you? First uh, Thessalonians 2, 3 to 4 says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He's saying, brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to trick you. There's no false motivation here. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests the heart. As I thought about this this week, even in my own life and situation and this week, I had multiple conversations, and this is just an illustration I used. I couldn't get away from it. Um, there is a danger that we're all wrestling with, whether we realize or not. Because every one of us in here could even be the reason why some of us aren't here. The, the weight of the issues going on in our life. 
struggles, things we are not in control of. It's, it's almost like this cup. This, coffee, this cup has lukewarm coffee, so I'm trying not to spill it all over myself using it as illustration. Your, your struggles can be like this cup, or it can be like this table. Any of us, what does your cup look like? Mine looks like heart disease and cancer and a few other things in my cup. What's in yours? What's in your cup? Stuff that weighs on you, stuff that's burden. Here's, here's the issue this morning is that we feel like the preacher just gave us something else to do and we don't have time for what we're doing already. What I am telling you this morning is part of that reason is that we are not entrusting to God the things that are in this cup so that we can keep them to size. I've met with people and all they want to talk about is cancer, cancer, cancer. And I'm sitting there going, I am more than that. God has given us a life to live. Is that part of a cup that's in my life? Yeah, and you got yours too, right? I mean, we can just go around. It's like, man, you got to get a bigger cup, right? Give me one of them Slurpee cups, right? <laughs> Started to bring one of them. I didn't think about it till this morning. It doesn't matter. If we are not trusting God in doing what He told us to do, but we're not entrusting God to say, I, I, I can't carry that this today, God. I've got a work that you've given me to do. And then do that work by faith. We'll miss it. We'll disregard the mission of God and use the burdens of life that is meant to make us more like Christ. They are meant to give you a bridge to the gospel to people that if you weren't struggling with that, you would never have it. And trust your fears and doubts and insecurities and failures. And listen, you got to do it on a daily basis. Or you will neglect your God-given mission. I guarantee you. Our pain is real. I'm not saying you just say the pain's not there. It is here. It's here with me and it's here with you. Our pain is real. Our burdens in life are real. And we got to deal with it. Well, we must not make it become a God in our life that tells us where and when we must worship and who and what we must do. God has done that. Christ has claimed it in your life. He, he, God gave us His Son, and He is our life. And all of our issues are not, not our life. They're simply things that we must deal with in life. This is incredibly hope-building. That no matter what it is, Jesus drank your cup. And the cup that we have now is not simply a cup of problems, but a cup of blessing. And brothers and sisters, let us go outside the camp because that is one of the blessings that's in the cup that Jesus died to give us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the gospel this morning that can both comfort and correct all at the same time. Now, Lord, now as we come to this time to where we all respond to the gospel, and I pray that you will save the lost comfort the suffering. I pray now, Lord, even now, 
that these burdens that are huge, that you would shrink them down for a Godward perspective, they would understand they might be in my cup, but they will not take over my life. Because you have. I pray that you would do that, even now, Lord. As we give, Lord, it's such a faith to be together in the summer, people go on vacation, and, and we struggle sometimes financially, Lord, but we trust you. We have never lacked for anything because you are good, and it is always enough. And so, Lord, we come to you now claiming that, that you are enough for us, you are enough for this church. And so now we just want to respond and worship to you to give you what you deserve. We want to honor your son today. And so we're going to celebrate communion together to remember he broke, his body was broken for us, his blood was poured out for us so that we may be one with him and one with each other and so that we get to be a part of this great mission to the world. May we enjoy you now. In Jesus' name, amen.